series under the word. And really the purpose of this series has been uh, to walk through um, and preach through really why we do what we do as we come together for corporate worship on a Sunday morning. I mean, we have a conviction that we would that we would be together on the Lord's Day, as we see it in Scripture, and that we would corporately worship God together. And so we thought, you know, why don't we take several weeks and talk about what it means to be under the Word of God, what it means to worship corporately, what does it mean um, to do the things that we do on Sunday? And I think um, what's been nice about this series for us is to really think through what we do every Sunday. Why do we gather to worship? What does the Word of God say about how we are to worship Him? Because He does talk to us about that through His Word, how we are to approach Him. And so, uh, not just having throwaway moments in a service, but to really think about, is everything we do in in our Lord's Day corporate worship together, is it purposeful? Is it biblical? Is it glorifying to God? So we talked about um, why we sing. And you guys heard Nate Maxfield preach about why we worship through music. Um, why we uh, preach the way we preach. What it means to, to teach the Word of God and to preach the Bible. Um, why we come every week and why we should gather consistently and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as it says in Hebrews, but be together. Um, we talked about... Um, We're going to be talking about, and I can't wait for this, Ethan in the back. Everybody just turn around and look at him. It's very, very exciting. Ethan is going to be preaching next week on why we come to the Lord's table. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Because the Lord's table is not just a moment where we dip bread into a cup. But there's something very, very significant about why God asks us, why Jesus himself asks us to do this in remembrance of him. And I'm excited for Ethan to share that with us. This morning, we're going to approach the topic of prayer. Now, I understand there is just, for all Christians, this low-grade guilt that we all feel in reference to prayer. Am I right? Please nod at me if you did. Like, we don't pray enough. Why don't I pray enough? How come I don't pray enough? Uh, There's this idea, and I don't think anyone's going to be surprised about what I say this morning, because... If you've been around the church for any significant period of time to say, like, God hears your prayers or ask and seek and knock, many of you have been a part of the church. You've read these verses. You've heard these sermons. You've you've listened to and talked about prayer often in your life. And so that's not going to be surprising to you. But but I think what we, we need to just get out of the way this morning is, is yeah, how, okay, let's just do it. How many people feel as though, as a Christian, if you're a believer, you just don't pray enough? Just raise your hand. Everybody look around and see everyone else's hands up, okay? We're okay here. Let's let's just deal with the low-grade guilt that we all feel about prayer. As I prepared this sermon, I began to think, can I even preach this thing? Like, I just don't feel like I pray enough. I don't feel like I, I take advantage of the opportunity to, to seek God in prayer like I should. And so there's, there is some idea of, all right, why? Why don't I do this? Why is it so difficult? Why does it, you know, sometimes it feels like an obligation, doesn't it? Anybody? It feels like a, like a, and, and listen, I'm not diminishing the idea that it is an obligation. We see it as an obligation for a believer in the scriptures to come to God and pray. But, but you know, to the degree that this obligation feels like a burden, I hope from the word of God this morning, we see the idea of prayer is, is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be in the presence of God, to seek the God of the universe who says, the reason you don't have is because you don't ask in James, or ask and seek and knock, and the door will be open to you. We have, we have a God that wants us to come to him in prayer, wants us to ask him for things, wants us to be in his presence and in relationship with him in, in prayer. We see throughout the narrative of, narrative of scripture, the people of God are a praying people, are they not? Last night we were at a restaurant, and I said these words to my son, who was asking me if he could use my phone. Ask me that again. And my tone and my eyes and the posture of my heart, that was a threat. (laughs) Right? 
me that again. And we have a God who says, ask me again, ask me again, bother me, petition me, and it's not a threat. How amazing is that? Unlike our earthly fathers, when God says, ask me that again, he means it. Isn't that a good thing? It's an amazing thing. He wants us to petition him in prayer. I think one of the reasons that some of us don't pray we don't know how. I think some of us, when we think about prayer, we struggle with it because we don't know how to pray. I mean, the disciples didn't, right? The disciples looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, tell us how to pray. And Jesus responded and said, when you pray, pray like this. In Matthew chapter 6, we see the Lord's prayer that we just sung about. And so in the vein of the disciples, I think this morning we can ask that question. How do we pray? Um, we, uh, this last year, uh, myself and Mike Maisie and Bernie and Mike Becker went to uh, Washington, D.C. spent some time down there. We went to a church uh, to be a part of a conference that was really just an opportunity for other pastors from all around the country to go to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Devers, the pastor down there, and to get a glimpse of what they do, how they do it, and to, to take a look at their elder team. We got to go to one of their elder meetings, and we spent significant time at that church over the weekend. I'm talking from 8 in the morning till sometimes midnight. We were there with this team of elders and with different leaders at that church just learning, learning. And one of the things that I know I walked away from that experience with uh, one of the things, there was a number of things, and, and we talked about it, um, is the idea of corporate prayer and how little we do it. I think sometimes our corporate prayers in evangelicalism um, traditionally are like transition times, right? Like we got to get from the band to the pastor, so someone just throw up an off-the-cuff spontaneous prayer so that the worship team has time to stop. And the pastor can come up, right? Sometimes our prayers, and not that spontaneous prayers are bad. I think I think there is a place for spontaneous prayers in the midst of a service. And, it, and even if it serves as a transition, it doesn't mean that it's not genuine. But what we noticed when we were down there, and I think it had roots. In fact, I know as I've looked, it has roots in historical Christianity and the history of the church from the first century on. Is that is that when God's people get together as a praying people, there are very, very purposeful Biblical prayers that are thought through and prepared so that as we petition God together, it's done with a sense of reverence and it's done with a sense of biblical awe towards God. Does that make sense? And so we saw a church that really has a very, very historic, uh, traditional type of, of methodology in the way that they worship on a Sunday morning. But as they went through a prayer of praise and a prayer of confession and a pastoral prayer, as they, as they, uh, corporately prayed to God together, and someone from the leadership team led in a very thoughtful prayer. I'm talking about the kind of thought that even went into the sermon they put into their prayers. And as you heard these prayers, and as the church corporately prayed them together, it was very, very powerful. And I, I remember walking away from that experience thinking, we worship and we sing and we preach. How did we lose prayer in the midst of our corporate worship together? And so we began to think through as a leadership team, how could we put corporate prayer as more of a priority in our worship service on a Sunday morning? And so part of what we're preaching through, why we do what we do in the series under the word, we're still learning and we're still growing in the way that we worship God together in our Sunday service. I, I hope that you noticed um, over the last couple of months, we have a very, very purposeful, well thought out pair of prayer of praise that happens at the beginning of our service. Has anyone noticed that? Mike Becker led it this morning and often does. And so we think through our call to worship passage and pray a prayer of praise to God. Um, as we think through prayer and how to pray and why we pray, you really, like for me, preparing this sermon, uh, normally we preach uh, an expository type sermon. This, this was very difficult to do because through the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, we see um, prayer is everywhere. God's people are praying people. They, they pray through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You really could 
throw a dart into the passages of Scripture, and chances are it's going to land on a passage that's talking about praying. And so what we see is prayer is built into how God has taught us to relate to him. And, and so prayer is, prayer is something that we see throughout Scripture. And I want to talk topically a little bit about that this morning, which is unusual. I'm going to generally reference this morning the Psalms. There is no more prayerful book in the Bible than the Psalter. You see throughout the Psalms these incredible prayers and examples of incredible prayers. And I want to walk through, um, really, and this is unusual for me, because I'm not big on, like, the, the what are they called, acrostics, you know? I'm not a big acrostic guy. Um, but this has been so helpful for me. And as I, as I look through the Lord's Prayer, as I look through Scripture, we see this idea of praying like acts. And I think some of you have heard this before in your Christian faith. The idea that we would start with adoration. And that we would move into a place of confessing of sin. And that we would pray thanksgiving to the Lord. And that we would also bring to the Lord, as he asks us to do, our supplications, our requests to him. You see that acrostic acts. You see that really um, in the Lord's prayer that we just sung. As Jesus teaching the disciples per the request how to pray, he starts out with our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And we see this idea of, although it brief, this idea of adoration, our Father. That was a radical statement. You cannot find throughout Jewish history a rabbi throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament that actually said the words in their public prayers or private prayers and, and referenced God as Father. And Jesus, in teaching his people how to pray, starts out by saying, Our Father. Our Father. Because through Christ we're adopted as his sons. And because of Christ we can approach him as Father. Jesus teaches us to pray by starting out by calling him Father. How amazing is that? To reference Yahweh, to reference the God of the universe with, with, uh, with this idea of our Father was radical to the listeners that were hearing Jesus teach on prayer. But he was the only begotten Son of God. And he could say, our Father. He could reference him that way. Hallowed be thy name. Some may think that that is more of adoration. But it, it's actually a supplication, I think. It's a request. He's saying to the disciples that God's name would be honored. I want you to pray that God's name would be honored in on earth like it is in heaven. You see, God's name is always honored in heaven. God's name is never blasphemed in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven. God, God is glorified consistently in heaven. And he's saying, I want you to ask God that his name, just like it's honored in heaven, would be honored right here on earth. That he would be glorified. Our first supplication to God would be that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, that his name would be honored right here, just like it is in heaven. Amen? So we see this idea through scripture on how we pray. I want to start with adoration. And if you would turn with me to Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. As we approach God in prayer, I think one of the first things we should do is approach Him with adoration. As we approach God in prayer, the first words out of our mouth should be adoring Him and speaking of His attributes. Praising Him for who He is. Thinking of His character. Thinking of His, his attributes. Thinking of His Righteousness, thinking of his gospel. And so as we come to God, we start with adoration. We start with talking about who he is. We start with glorifying him. And I think, you know, as you pray, there's also a posture. Is there not? A posture of prayer. And we see that biblically. And I think it's important to talk about. You know, how do, how do I pray? How do I approach God in prayer? What posture should I take? When I was in college... Um, at 
a very, very close friend who in 1995, he moved to the Dominican Republic and he started a church, he started a school, he moved into one of the worst barrios, he, he refused to move kind of behind this gated community with other missionaries, but he went right in uh, to a very difficult place and he's been there since 1995. And just his heart was amazing. And when I was in college, he was still uh, obviously in the States. He was preparing to move to the Dominican Republic. And he used to come to me and say, Jeremy, I want you to come pray with me. And I said, okay, I would love to pray with you, Rod. When, when are we going to pray? He's like, I start at 4. I'm like, p.m.? Nope. 4 a.m. Never forget the impact Rod Davis had on my life. Me and another student, CJ, would roll out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning. Actually, probably more closer to like quarter of 4 when you get to his house. How many of you guys know that 4 o'clock in the morning hurts? Like, it's physically painful to get up. Anybody? Like, like it just hurts. Um, and as a college student, man. And so we, we would jump in a car. We'd go over to Rod's house. Walk into his house and he'd say, Jeremy, CJ's going to pray over here. And Jeremy, you can go down in the basement and pray. And, and he prayed in his room upstairs. And it was amazing for me because as a college student, I went down into the basement at 4 o'clock in the morning. I would put a chair in the middle of the floor. And, and, and as, a, as, a, as a freshman in college, I don't know that I knew how to really approach the Lord. And it was 4 in the morning, so I would get down on my knees, and I'd put my head on the chair, and obviously I'm fighting sleep, right? I'm just like the disciples in the garden. I'm fighting sleep. And you know what would keep me awake? It's like I could hear Rod upstairs above me weeping and praying and crying out to God. And, and sometimes I would just sit and listen to his prayers as, as he would teach me how to pray and approach God. And, and when he would approach God, I, I, I recognized he would worship, he would sing, he would cry out to God about who God was, and that had an impact on me. And this idea of approaching, approaching God first with adoration and, and crying out to him about his attributes, who he is, what his character is, what he's all about. And sometimes I think as you learn how to pray, and as you pray more in your personal life, this portion of your prayer gets longer. When we first start to pray, a lot of times it's, God, I need help. I want this job. I need this. I need that. And we bring our request to God. And listen, we're going to get to that in a moment. And that is a biblical thing to do. But first, approaching God with adoration. Let's read Psalm 66. It's an amazing example. Psalm 66, 1 through 4. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So the psalmist uh, declares to us that we would shout to the Lord, that we would sing praises to his name, that we would talk about who he is, that we would talk about how awesome his deeds are, how great his power is. Many times as we pray and begin with adoration, we can use psalms like this to pray the word of God. How great is that? Not even to use our own words, but to pray the words that are inspired by the Holy, the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We can pray these <laughs> words. Maybe it would be helpful to you in your time of adoration if you do this as we do it publicly or if you do it in your, in your private prayer time. Look up the attributes of God. Look through scripture and, and, and look at his character, his characteristics. Find lists maybe um, on the Google, right? Just kidding. Um, you know, of the attributes of God from the Bible, not from the Google. Um, I'm just saying the Google, I'm not, not that old. Um, find lists of his attributes, his character, who he is. And then begin to tell him. You're omniscient. You're all-powerful. You're slow to anger. You're a loving father. You're a forgiving father. You're, you're a wrathful God. You're a just God. You're, you're in control. You're sovereign. Begin to cry out to God and adore him for who he is. Adore him for his deeds. Pray through the gospel. You, you're a forgiving God. You, you came and you sacrificed uh, your, your life for us. You're my substitute.
substitution, your, the wrath-absorbing propitiation for my sin. Begin to pray through Scripture. Pray through the attributes and the deeds of our great God. And spend some time in the opening of your prayer time adoring Him. Amen? When we do a prayer of praise corporately here, that's what we do. It's our call to worship, and we do a prayer of praise of, of who God is and what He's done, and we praise Him for His deeds. Sometimes, honestly... As you jump into your prayer time like this, it's hard to get out of this moment. You may just have prolonged periods of prayers of adoration and prayers of praise. And that's okay. What's helpful many times in this type of prayer is to worship. Worship God with a prayerful song. Many of the psalms are, are prayers. We really are praying many times in our worship as, as we're led in song. Songs of adoration about who God is. That's why we generally prefer worship songs that are written about who God is and not about us, right? Because it's an opportunity to pray and adore God for who he is. So we see adoration. We see Jesus teaching the disciples that. We see it throughout scripture. We see it throughout the Psalms. Adoring God for who he is. The next thing we move to, I think, in prayer, and what we may, uh, you, you're going to begin to see in our corporate prayer service, and we see it throughout Scripture, is this idea of coming to God with confession. We've talked and met uh, with Paul and, and Matt Unright about how can we work in purposeful prayers and confession to our worship time in the beginning songs of our service, because we believe. These prayers are important. And then have a passage where we read this assurance of pardon, where God has assured our pardon. And, and to pray and confess together. One of the most powerful times down in D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church was a young man who was interning with Mark Dever as a pastoral intern. He got up and he prayed a written, prepared prayer of confession on Sunday morning that absolutely shook all 1,000 people sitting in that church. He began in his prayer of confession uh, to, to honestly cry out with such genuineness that he began to weep through his own prayer of confession. And it wasn't this young man just confessing his sins before God, but what it was is he was confessing sins that were common to all of us. And so as we corporately confess together in prayer, um, just it was a powerful, powerful moment. Of confession, We see in the Word of God confessing our sins one to another. We see this idea of confession in Scripture. One of the most powerful examples of it, I, I actually referenced a few weeks ago, and, and need to reference now, if you would turn to Psalm 51. We see a powerful, powerful prayer of confession. Psalm 51 was written just after David had sinned with Bathsheba. You see, King David did not go to battle with his army. He stayed behind. He sent the army to battle. In his idle hands, as he came to the roof of his palace, he looked over and he saw Bathsheba. He lusted after her. He called for her and committed adultery. After committing adultery, he sent her husband Uriah to the front lines. He conspired. To send her husband into the heat of the battle in the front lines where he was surely to be killed. And he was. And we see David, the king, this example of, of such an incredible king in the history of, of the people of God in Israel. We see this unbelievable uh, sin where he, as the king, commits adultery and murder. And he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan tells the story of the man who had the Yule lamb. He raised the lamb as his own. It was the only lamb he had. It was like a pet. That The lamb would be with him every day. The lamb would eat at his table. The lamb would uh, be in his bedroom. The lamb would always be with him. He loved this lamb. And the great uh, wealthy ruler in the area came and who had hundreds if not thousands of his own sheep. He came to this, uh, this man who had one Yule lamb and he took the Yule lamb from him. And we see this in uh, Samuel. He took the Yule lamb from him and he, he killed that lamb and ate it for his feast. When Nathan the prophet addressed David, David became angry. 
about what this man did. He stood up and he said, who is this man? And Nathan said these words to David. You, you are that man. David's broken with his own sin. Recognizing that he was the one who had done such a thing. We see Psalm 51. We see David's prayer. David's heart of confession. Let's read it together. What a powerful prayer this is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 17 may not be up there. I'm going to jump down to it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. What a powerful confession. God has called us in his word to approach him in prayer with confession. We adore him. We, we cry out to him about who he is and his character and his righteousness. We also come to him and confess our sins. And I think there's some interesting things about the way that David does this. You see in the beginning of Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You notice David doesn't ask for justice. David recognizes that justice would mean he should be killed. Justice for murder and adultery would have been death. But he says, God, I'm crying out to you to deal with me according to your mercy. Have mercy on me, O oh God. What a powerful prayer. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. It's as if David is crying out because he's plagued with the conscious reality of his sin. Almost like Macbeth with the spots of blood on hands saying, damn it, this, this, uh, this spot of blood. Wash it from my hands. Like Almost like I think of Edgar Allan Poe in the, in the telltale hearts. Where you hear the heartbeat, you hear the heartbeat, you hear the heartbeat. And David is saying, my sin is ever before me, God. Blot out my sin. Take it away from me. Wash it white as snow. What a powerful confession. Who here, in, in the conviction of their own sin, has ever felt like that? Who here, in the conviction of their own sin, has ever said, my sin is ever before me. Please blot it out, God. Wash it. Take it away from me. What an evidence of the work of God in your life if you feel that way. Because to even feel conviction of sin, sin means God's working in your heart. Amen? And as God works in our heart, as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, God calls us to come to Him in prayer with confession that would say, deal with me according to your mercy. Please blot out my sin. And we see passages in the New Testament that say he, he casts our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. He remembers it no longer. Amen? 
as we come to him in confession. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4 is an interesting statement. And if it wasn't inspired by scripture, I would question it. Against you. You only have I sinned. And alone, what is evil in your sight. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What do you think about that for a minute? I mean, did David not sin against Bathsheba? Did David not sin against Uriah? Did David not sin against every general who he commanded? And having Uriah go to the front lines and be killed? Did David not sin against every private in his army, against everybody? As the king who was supposed to be the example of walking in righteousness, David really sinned against everybody in town, right? David had sinned against everyone, but here's what David is saying. As we see in the New Testament that without law, there is no sin. That the God whose law was broken, he is who he has sinned against. That the God who created the law, the God who decides what is right and what is wrong, the God that even gives us a standard by which we see truth, by which we see sin and righteousness, he's maximizing the fact that it is him and him alone who he sinned against. Amen? And he's recognizing that he's not going to make any excuses for himself, but he's crying out in a way that says, God, I recognize it's me and I've sinned against you. And you alone, and I'm confessing that sin to you. What a powerful, powerful cry in this prayer of confession. So powerful to, to confess in prayer, to, in our humanity, bring into the light that which we know God knows anyway. Amen? These, these sins that we think are in, in darkness, these sin, sins that we commit that we think are so private, that are just hidden in a corner, that no one knows about, that swept under the rug, that really stress and plague us as, as we have them in the backs of our minds. Is there anywhere you can go where God doesn't see you? Is there anywhere you can go or anything you can do where God does not know? And we come to God with the truth and the reality of our sin and we confess it and we bring it into the light. And we say, God, deal with me according to your mercy. For I've sinned against you and you alone. Amen? What our confession is all about. David confesses. He goes on to say, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And again, this is more uh, uh, just powerful confession because some, some may read this and think that this is like he's making an excuse. Like, God, listen, I was born this way. My mom's fault, right? That's not what he's saying here. David is saying, it's not just my conscious sins, but I was, I was born into sin. I was born bent. I was born broken by sin. In iniquity, my mother conceived me. And, and I'm asking for forgiveness for that too. I'm not only asking for forgiveness for the active sins that I did, but I'm asking forgiveness uh, that, that you would forgive me for my character, for the fact that I am just a sinner. Amen? He's asking for forgiveness, not just for these particular sins, but for the fact that his character is sinful. That he's conceived in transgression, in iniquity. I love David's heart. And what we see in the narrative of Scripture is that God loved David's heart as well. And this is a great example of how we are to approach God in confession. Against you alone I've sinned. 4b, we see, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This may be a requirement for repentance here. In this, in this part of the passage, we see David recognizing God would be just to punish him. He's not making any excuses. He's not saying, yeah, but God, you know, help me out here. Yeah, but it's not really my fault. Yeah, but no. God, it would be just for you to punish me. And I'm asking you to deal with me according to mercy. A recognition.
conviction in our hearts that we have fallen short, that we are sinful, and we're confessing it and asking God to be merciful to us. Amen? Forgive me for what I am and created me a clean heart. And I jump down to verse 17. Because what we know about this story is that justice would have been that David served the sentence of death. And God said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have mercy on you. But the fruit of this adulterous relationship is going to die. The baby that he bore with Bathsheba would die. And David, when the child was born, he didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He went into his chamber and he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. And he cried out to God to save the child. He cried out to God to spare the child. And even when the child passed away, the child died, those who were aware of it were afraid to tell him that he would harm himself. And they wandered outside, kind of where he was praying, and just looked in. And David, smart enough to realize what was going on, noticed. He looked out and said, the baby is dying. And he wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. We see an example of even in our unanswered prayers, God is worthy of praise. Amen. He is worthy of worship even in our unanswered prayers. We recognize his sovereignty even in our brokenness and our broken hearts. We recognize that God is in control and he knows what's best in his sovereignty. He is writing the narrative of our lives. He is weaving this entire story uh, together for his good and his glory. Amen. And David in his brokenness and in his unanswered prayer recognized that even a, a contrite and broken heart God will not despise. That moves us to this idea of, of, of thanksgiving and supplication. We see this idea of thanksgiving and, and supplication in the Psalms as well. If you would turn with me to Psalm 136. And I'll move quicker now. God calls us to be thankful in fact, as we see in Romans 1, the idea of the, the sinfulness of man and, and the brokenness of mankind throughout Romans 1, we see uh, two things. We see people who will not honor God, and we see people who are ungrateful to God as being the major themes of our sinfulness. And one of the things, in light of the gospel, in light of who God is, as we adore him and as we confess to him, we should have rise out of our spirits, what? Thankfulness. In light of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we see in the New Testament that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and recognize because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that our righteousness is what? It's not our own. That the only reason our fervent prayer would avail with God is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he's given to us as a substitution because we're not righteous in and of ourselves. Amen? We can come and we can pray fervently based on the righteousness of Christ. God says for us to come with thanksgiving, thankfully, with a grateful heart, recognizing that because of what Jesus has done, we live a life of grateful worship. Not trying to earn brownie points with God, not trying to get God to like us, but recognizing the reality of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ means he already loved us when we weren't even looking for him. And so now our response is to live a life of thankfulness and gratefulness in the way that we worship and approach him for what he has already done. Amen? So we see that we approach God in prayer with thankfulness. We see in Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen? For his steadfast love endures forever. 
Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. What an amazing God. Look at verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we approach God in adoration and declaring his attributes and his character. We approach God in prayer through confession, confessing our sins, confessing that, 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 that we need his mercy, confessing and asking for his pardon, and then coming with thanks, thanks, thankfulness, coming with thanksgiving and grateful prayer. Because he has assured our pardon, because of Christ and because of the gospel, we can thank him for what he's done. Amen? And be grateful. Listen, let me just give a caveat. This is not like a name it and claim it thankfulness. This is not, I'm not preaching, thank God for uh, things that God has not promised and assured in scripture. I'm going to thank you, God, ahead of time, and I'm going to claim that job I want, or that car I want to buy. That's garbage. That's not the gospel. Does everybody hear me? I hope I'm being very clear. Thanking God for something he hasn't promised you isn't, isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we can thank him for is for the forgiveness of sins and for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the things that he has promised us in his word. Amen? Side note. Because that is so broadly preached sometimes. This idea of just thank him for it ahead of time because he's going to give it to you. Well, if, if he promised it in his word, we can be assured of pardon. We can be assured of salvation. But there's other things that we come and bring as a petition. And we'll get to that supplication. Being thankful for God's will regardless of, of answered prayer. Amen? So we come with thankfulness. I think thankfulness and, and gratefulness should be laced throughout the entire prayer and everything we do. Every time we approach God and who he is, it should, it should come with, with just gratefulness. And thanksgiving. For his love endures forever. Amen? Look at Philippians 4, 6 with me quick. It's not going to be up on the screen. Paul talks about how to approach God. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, I'm sorry, down to verse 6. I was reading 4. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? So here's Paul in the New Testament saying, don't be fearful, don't be anxious about anything, but, but bring your petitions to the Lord. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we see this idea of thanksgiving and supplication both in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. This idea of being anxious. How many of you guys know that we, we are an anxious society, right? Come on, we got more people in on, on anxiety medicine today than in the history of the planet, right? Um, and we're anxious about a lot of things. I mean, we, we look at we look at our phones, and we look at our Facebook, and we look at our social media, and we see what everybody else is doing, and how amazing their lives are, right? Because everybody's life is amazing on Facebook. It is the moment everyone was smiling that they took the shot before everything fell apart, right? That's what we all understand about our own lives. But when we look at the lives of everybody else, it seems amazing. Man, it's amazing how great they're doing. Look at how loving their family is. Look at how clean their house is in the background. I mean, there's so many things that are stressing us out. Am I right? How come they're all hanging out and we didn't get invited? I mean, social media has caused incredible anxiety in the lives of people. And when we're anxious and fearful, what do we see from Scripture? It's generally when we care about other things more than God, right? Very anxious about that thing that I just spent a lot of money on that just got dented. I'm very anxious about that thing that I want. I'm very anxious about these things that I'm going after. And, and, and the idea here is don't be anxious, don't be fearful, because we believe God and who he is, and he's number one in our life. So bring your request to him with thanksgiving. Amen? That's what Philippians says. So we come 
grateful. We make our petitions knowing that we are talking to the only one who can do anything about all the stuff that matters. So we bring our request to him. And our fear and our anxiety is subsided and he gives us peace. Why? Because we understand everything that's happening in our lives? No. He gives us peace because we know he knows and he's in control and he's good. Amen? He loves us. And he is in control. So we bring our requests. God, our request first is that your name would be held. That your name would be made great. That your kingdom would come. And we come, God, knowing you care about us. You are not disinterested. You are not distant. We come bringing our personal requests. There came a moment in my life a couple years ago where for some reason I just became incredibly anxious about my kids. I don't know what it was. Maybe as a child abuse prosecutor for 11 years, maybe um, maybe just my own sin, maybe just, I don't know what it was, but I was feeling incredible fear and incredible anxiety that we were away on vacation. And uh, I was woken up early in the morning with anxiety and fear. I just walked out on the beach and I spent at least an hour or more in fervent, fervent prayer, just asking God to, to take care of my kids. I remember bringing that request in a way that I never had before. And listen, here's what the peace I was given from God wasn't that they're always going to be safe. It wasn't that nothing bad is going to happen to them. It wasn't that they're never going to be hurt. But I felt a peace and a, and a, and a, and a joy that came from God and understanding that, that he is in control. Amen? And he is sovereign in their lives. And they're in his hands. And in the moments of life that really just take the tendons right out of your knees and you uh, can't stand. In the moments in life that knock the wind right out of your gut and you are experiencing incredible difficulty and you say, God, that prayer wasn't answered. We know that as we bring our request to God, that he is sovereign and he is in control. And even in our unanswered prayers, he knows what we need better than we do. And it's his grace that some of our prayers aren't answered. Amen? Even as difficult as that is and as hard as it is, and in the midst of loss and tragedy and different things that happen in our lives, we can still in our pain and in our brokenness say what David said, a broken and a contrite heart you won't despise. And even in my brokenness, God, is your grace. And I look to you and recognize you're sovereign and you're in control. And you understand what's going on, even though I clearly don't. And God says, come to me. Ask, seek, knock. Isaiah says, bother me repeatedly in Isaiah 62. Bother me repeatedly with your petitions and with your prayers. And when God says, ask me again, it's not a threat. He wants you to ask him. He wants you to come to him. And somehow in the paradox of God's sovereignty, he says in James chapter 4, you don't have something because you haven't asked for it. And so what we recognize, even though it's a paradox and God is completely sovereign and in control, that our asking actually does something. One of the greatest paradoxes of scripture. But I know I don't understand it. He does and he told me to ask. And he says, I don't have things because I haven't asked for them. And so I need to come to him and ask and petition and cry out to God. And then trust him with what he would do, his will. Jesus even asked that the cup would pass for him. And then recognize that could not happen. And praise God anyway as he headed to the cross. The people of God are a praying people, amen? The scripture is full of it. We want to do it not just on our own, but we want to pray together corporately as we worship him. And so I hope you see, you will see, and I hope you join us. Sunday mornings as you come together, we're not just going to sing together, we're not just going to hear the word together, but we are going to pray together, amen? Let's do it right now, the worship team can come.
Lord God, we come to you and recognize you are a great God. You are a loving God. You are slow to anger. You are sovereign. You are in control. You're gracious to us. Lord, we recognize this morning the depth of our sin. Confess to you that we fall short and do not pray like we should. We've been given an opportunity to approach the God of the universe who's in control of everything. And we squander it so often. So many times we think other things are more important. Or easier. We pray that you would challenge us, God. To pray. You would challenge us, challenge us to approach you. To come to you consistently. To not be intimidated. Or discouraged. Because of the difficulty of it. But we would be encouraged because of who you are. And that you still allow us to come to you. We are grateful for your grace. We are grateful that you are loving. We are grateful that you have forgiven us. We are grateful for Jesus. And that he was the substitute who absorbed your wrath and your justice for our sin. And that we now can stand before you. Forgiven and justified. We're so thankful. And that you continue to, to change us and help us live out that reality in the way that we love and forgive each other. God, we pray that you would help us. You would help us on this mission you've given us. That you would help us Reflect the gospel in our lives, in our workplace, in our families. That you would help those who are hurting in this place and in such need. That you would bring peace, that you would bring comfort. That you would bring the reality of your peace that goes beyond our ability to understand. Because of who you are. Help those in this place hurting this morning to see it. Pray for healing. We pray for those in need this morning. And we pray, God, that you would help us as your people meet those needs by your hand and your grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.